0: Hello, this is On Mike with Jordan Rich, a podcast dedicated to a simple proposition, that conversation is alive and well, and if people have something to say, I'm ready to listen. Today's guest certainly has something to say, and he does so with that beautiful British accent. His name is Julian Sturton, and he's a leadership coach of The Finest Order, coaching executives and entrepreneurs from around the world to lead beyond their already successful accomplishments. He founded the Business of Leading back in 1993, and his work is known and respected around the globe. I think you'll enjoy hearing his philosophy not only on leadership, but also on the human condition, and how coping with challenge might be our greatest teaching tool. So all of that and more on the language of leadership with Julian Sturton, as we welcome him and go on mic. I'm a listener by profession. I have to listen to the people I'm communicating with. And it seems as though that's a big part of the leadership language, not just spewing, but listening and taking it all in. Am I right about that, Julian?
1: It is, yes. Because although there's lots of people conducting consulting and coaching, so they've heard various uh, interpretations and have experienced different forms of consulting and coaching. But when I bring the language of leading into the dialogue with that customer or that client, uh, they may already have a sense of perception from their own previous experiences. But that's like asking the client, well, what, what did you do last week? And then we'll put that experience in the foreground. That doesn't work, you see because we confuse our background with what's going on in the foreground. And that's why mm. people are, are quite often confused and sometimes really screwed up about what they're supposed to be doing, you see. So I separate the past from what they're about to interface. You well,
0: see. well, that's a perfect segue, because I was going to ask you to talk a little bit about your Fascinating background. It, it reads like a novel or a, or a movie, uh, like somebody scripted it. But you've had travel all over the world. You've had adventure. You've had hardship. And you've lived a full life. Tell us a little bit about how that's influenced your work as a leading coach in leadership.
1: Yeah, I brought up in one of our dialogues, I think, that I, I managed to interact uh, after being in this country two or three years, a gentleman called Peter Drucker. I'm mentioning his name because he and I worked on an idea, one of these concepts that's been blanded around for years called the coping mechanism, right? So it wasn't until I realized from my dialogue with Peter Drucker, who you may know is a very renowned, uh, well-written about, uh, consultative, probably a genius. There'd be more books written about him in, in business school. So he and I got to know each other. I, I actually called him out of the blue. So this concept of the coping mechanism was a way of looking back in my history, in my upbringing, to see how I could use what was uh, distinct from other people's upbringing, but instead of being the victim of those consequences, I use it to an advantage because we we sometimes tend to use bad things that happen to continually be negative. So I realized that I used my experience, and I think I shared with you, it was a very, very, very destructive upbringing, which is why you pointed to a thing. People who I've met have suggested that, yes, Julian, you have to write a book or you have to write a movie script or something like this because it's a fascinating uh, set of uh, experiences, you see. But um, that's not come to fruition. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But uh, I'm interested in uh, where our conversation today might lead because, of course, my background has got a lot to do with what I do now, especially how this coping mechanism was uh, rising to the occasion instead of me being continually reminded of the horrible things that happened to me, what I realized now that when there were horrible things happening to me, um, Jordan, I realized that the coping mechanism was kicking in every time something was going on that seemed like it was dangerous or, or risky. So my part of my background had to do with when... It was a very destructive environment. The family was was broken up. There was a situation where um, my 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 father was was incarcerated. He was actually sent to jail uh, for the fact that uh, I don't think it was an, an a mal intention of his to do what he was doing. It had a lot to do with my uh, my mother meeting him. How much do you want me to go into the background, by the way? Well,
0: I think it it helps to paint a picture of you to give us a a general overview because that leads to where you've taken this business and this, this teaching. So a bit more would be good.
1: Okay, good. So I've realized that I'm not the only person on the planet that's had a very dangerous and frightening and terrifying and dysfunctional upbringing. So over the years, I realized looking back to my past, that the horrible things were happening that were literally terrifying. I couldn't understand exactly how to cope under normal sequences. So my first reaction to things that were very frightening going around the family was to get away, run away, go as far as you can. So I started off literally, Jordan, by walking outside the house when there was violent situations going on, when there were arguments. And it was just, it was very, 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 very unsettling and very Mm -hmm. frightening. Mm -hmm. So I used to go outside the house and walk around, and eventually I used to go further and further away. So the story about that, to prolongate that a bit, was as I became a teenager, I I thought that uh, going further away than just the local district seem like a good idea. Mm. I, it, it, it puts something that I've discovered, which is important to notice in the language of leading, that we, we preserve our sense of belonging. That's one of the major senses that I introduce to people when they're in a very clear, uh, disproportionate, difficult situation that my clients have often found themselves in. So the further I went, so here's what I used to do. I used to go and work in a factory or a business to earn some money in the summertime. That was one way of coping because uh, our family became bankrupt. They lost all the money that they had because of the situation that my father put the family into, you see. And so uh, I was terrified of, of not having enough. And it seemed like not having enough was to do with just about every resource that a family is supposed to rely on, if that makes sense.
0: It does, yeah.
1: So going to work in a factory or, a, or a, a plant of something to earn some money allowed me to then go on my travels. So each year I used to go for hitchhiking was the modus operandi of traveling. Mm-hmm. You probably remember those days. I back certainly back do, and, yeah. Back in the 60s. So I started off by hitchhiking around Europe on my own. I was only 14 years old. The next year, one of my dear school friends and I, we we hitchhiked down to Spain. The year after that, my friend Clive. And I'll share a very, 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 very funny, extraordinary experience that's just happened in the last few days, Jordan. Um, So I was going as far away as I could. By the time I was 18, my school friends, asked, well, where's Sturton going to this year? Maybe he'll go around the world. I thought that's a good idea. So I literally took what they were indicating as a way of of expressing my survival mechanism, which is coping with the situations that I was terrified with at home, you see. You see this kind of pattern that was evolving, Jordan, right? Mm -hmm. So then I, I decided with my dear friend Clive with whom when we were 16 he and i hitchhiked around north africa on our own <laughs> and then the year after that i hitchhiked by myself down to southern iran down to the arabian peninsula on my own and the year after that was when clive and i decided well let's let's get look let's get a little more sophisticated about this so we we actually got sponsors we bought a a uh, a Volkswagen Beetle from a retiring sergeant major from the British Army in Germany. It had already done 100,000 miles, Right, this little Volkswagen Beetle. We learned how to take the car to pieces and put it back by memory. And so we decided, well, let's go as far as we can. And so we we raised uh, sponsorship money. We learned the journey and we learned how to put the car back together again and take it apart and learn everything about the car. And then we set off on our journey, you see, and we drove 25 and a half thousand miles in this little Volkswagen Beetle all the way virtually to the Chinese border and back. Because when people hear me say that I drove around the world. It was the actual mileage that became the circumference of the planet that Hmm. we actually uh, drove all around the world. We didn't cheat because then we'd have had to tell people we had to fly over the Pacific. Uh, um, I'm guessing
0: the beetle didn't have air conditioning. I'm just guessing.
1: The beetle didn't have air conditioning. (laughs) Wow. And we did, in fact, we did travel across probably some of those uh, dangerous geophysical parts of the world, deserts jungles, mountains, rainforests, you name it.
0: You're a regular Indiana Jones at that point at 18 or 17 years old then.
1: Exactly, yeah. yeah. So and what we, is it? Th- we, we, were, we were fearless, we were fearless.
0: So you, you call this your way of coping. Uh, it's its exploring, yes. it's moving on, but it's actually being independent, being on your own, right?
1: It is somewhat being independent, allowing uh, your own self to exist and survive in difficult situations, which hadn't worked at home. If you see the mm-hmm. pattern,
0: I see. You mentioned a funny story, and Clive. I don't want you to veer off without telling.
1: Yeah, me. this. My wife and I last weekend we were we were sitting watching TV in bed, and suddenly we brought up some topic about traveling and where we wanted to go around the world. And then one of us brought up the the the, the travel that I just shared with you. Yeah. So we were wondering what had happened to Clive. Clive, unlike myself, had a successful period in the schooling part of our livelihoods. you see. He became a, a, a fairly well-renowned entomologist. In other words, he's a bug scientist. Mm-hmm. He's a doctor of entomology. So we were, my wife and I were talking about this last Saturday wondering where he was, and we thought, have well, I never heard from him. I said, well, I don't know where he is, and uh, I'm not a big fan of doing much on social media technology, so she, my wife decides to see if he's on LinkedIn, so she sent a message uh, through LinkedIn just to see what happened. Well, believe it or not, the day after, I got an email from Clive Topper. This is the man... I hadn't interacted with for 50 years. I'm 69. So it's when we were 19 years old, we went to So 50 years interval. So I got this amazing. And I thought, I said, well, I, I could share the email with you, actually. It's quite extraordinary. Um, I said, my goodness me, stranger, a lot of water under the bridge. I can't believe you've got, uh, we've discovered it. The. Now, that's all I thought I'd ever hear from him. So I responded back. And uh, and so he then sent me an, an, a, 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 a much longer email telling me what he'd been doing because I knew he'd been traveling all over the world, and he has. And the email was amazing because he was saying that he's, he's, his wife, who died a, several years ago, he's now living in the southern west part of England. And uh, he was saying, in fact, that... Uh, He's suffering from some some similar air conditioner I'm having, which is quite extraordinary because I'll be going up to Boston to have my cochlear implant replaced. And he said, I'm about to have my cochlear implant, which is why it might not be a good idea for us to talk by phone. So he said, I now interact with people by, uh, by, um, by email. And he told me all the countries he's been living in and working in and studying in, literally countries all over the world, from Africa to South America, to the Far East, and uh, it was amazing getting this email from Mm. Clive. So it's kind of an interesting cap on the story about my travels uh, as a youngster, you see.
0: Well, the travels and all the experiences um, have obviously led to your being an international consultant. So you're talking to people from various countries there must be similarities with with each and every culture that you can hone in on and focus on to promote good leadership. If so, how do you do that? What's your secret?
1: That's a very, very good question because i realized in my studies of other consultants and other business models and other coaches, the more I was reading about um, what is out on the playing field of consulting and coaching, right? Had to allow me to respond to my clients' requests when I started my coaching business when I moved to United States in 1986, Um, people were saying, your work is very, very different from other traditional consultants or coaches. Well, I think this has got a lot to do with my own development, which is to consider that the world is one's oyster. In other words, one's ability to see things on a global scale is necessary if you're going to grow your business. Remember, I don't think I share this with you. I worked in the hospitality industry, and to give you a quick, short, sharp uh, introduction to that, the coping mechanism has played a role throughout my whole life. And what I mean by that is, when I was dropping out of school at the age of, really, the age of 16, or rather stopping any kind of understanding that I was going to learn from my school uh, experience because I was so frightened I couldn't actually uh, barely hear what I was being taught, you see. So mm-hmm. the schooling, which is why Clive and I were very different, you see. So my schooling was, was really based upon surviving and getting by and why I'm mentioning that is because my dear Uncle George, I've got an uncle, sorry, he passed away many, many years ago. And I, as, this is a contribution to the fact that, yes, people ought to make some movie of the Sturton family. My dear Uncle George, bless his soul, uh, was uh, the founder of Plastic Surgery. Him and Sir Archie Mackindo were recruited by the British government at the duration, uh, the beginning of the Second World War, when the Battle of Britain was being fought over the, the, the English Channel. So they recruited my uncle and Sir Archie MacIndo, who was a civilian. My uncle was uh, ended up becoming the head of the Royal Air Force uh, Medical Unit. He became Royal Surgeons of the Queen as well, actually. Uh, but he's no longer alive. He had a heart attack about a few months before they were going to give him a knighthood because you can't offer a knighthood to members of the military posthumously, you see. So it annoyed my my aunt, his wife, uh, badly because she always wanted to be known as Lady Jane, you see. So. Oh, but the point of this is my uncle sent me when I was there, in my mid-teens to an industrial psychologist on Harley Street, if you're familiar with London. Uh, Harley Street is the rodeo drive of medical practitioners. Okay. So the point I'm making about this is that um, they assessed after three days of, 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 of treatment or assessing what I was going to be good at, because I was the ultimate black sheep of the family, you see. Nobody knew what to do with me. So they came out from the assessment of this experience with this industrial psychologist I was either going to be a lawyer, a journalist, or in a hospitality industry. Well, I wasn't going to be a, a lawyer. That was thrown out the window. Um, journalism was interesting because now I love writing. And also, most of my clients are lawyers. But I ended up in the hospitality industry, and I started out rock bottom. And this is where a part of this coping mechanism contributed so i I was offered a job to work in a a small hotel as part of a small hotel chain in the town that i was growing up in and i worked rock bottom doing everything and i worked my way up until obviously i'm looking backwards from my uh conversation with peter Drucker in realizing that the coping mechanism was was doing me a great service because i worked my way up to the top i became uh one of the heads of marketing for the biggest hospitality chain in the world. So you realize that uh, this really, uh, this coping mechanism that was actually working.
0: As you say this, you're probably the only person I've ever heard refer to a coping mechanism as a positive. Most people will refer to a coping mechanism as a way to avoid, escape, divert attention and just hide. But it seems to have had the opposite impact on you and what you're espousing.
1: Well, exactly. So if one is coping with difficulties, I think one's left at the survival level. If you're trying to cope with difficulties, you're simply trying to survive. I looked at the experience of when I was exposed to difficulties that, Julian, you better do more than simply survive or else you may not be around for very much longer. The traveling part, which is why Peter Drucker made some interesting comments when he got to know me and he got to know my background and what I was up to. When he heard about my long traveling, the coping mechanism, this is where the coping mechanism becomes very, very exciting and why I realized it was more than just allowing me to survive. When Clive and I traveled around the world, we were literally, uh, Jordan, living with natives in wild areas of of the the rainforests and up in tribes in the mountain areas whose conditions were so poor, so bad. When we were in Bangladesh, on the border of Bangladesh, if you remember the war for the independence of Bangladesh, there were mothers who were actually intentionally uh, removing the limbs of their children so they could beg in the streets. Mm. So my mind turned itself around. I changed my mind from someone that was running away from the so-called deprived condition I thought I was living in to suddenly realizing And my mind told me, Julian, you're not that bad off. So that's when the coping mechanism played an important part of my particular uh, vocation. You see, I was realizing, oh, when you're in the experience of people in those conditions, you're really not that bad off. So it really was a big turnaround. So the coping mechanism wasn't just for me to survive. Surviving was running away. Coping mechanism brought me back so I could actually enable myself mm. to do something about me being a victim of my circumstances. So I've extended the coping mechanism into my work, you see, because people often don't know how to, when they're in difficulties, they don't know how to do more than simply get by or survive. And that's probably why you have heard the coping mechanism as a way of just getting by. Right.
0: Well, it's interesting as you and I have gotten to know each other off mic here and we're doing this podcast today because I really wanted you to, share some of your philosophies. What's interesting is your passion for what you do pours through every seam (laughs) here. And I want to have you address the focus on what matters. You have three things, and and all of these make perfect sense, but I want to have you describe each one. Integrity of relationships, impeccability of products and services, and mutual value to all stakeholders. Let's talk about integrity. That's a word that's tossed around rather lightly sure. these days, but it does now, matter.
1: Me, I will do. Can I just quickly address all three of those? Sure. Uh, notions. I refer to impeccability as a way of building a relationship with people, especially if you're trying to build a business or, or run a company or have a family, your relationships are probably equally as essential as everything else. Sometimes more essential and i realize that when you're leading, you're not just surviving, you're not just coping. When you're leading in a situation at work or at home, you better put yourself in front and know how to put yourself in front of prevailing circumstances. It's not just getting by because you're, you're surviving in the marriage or you're surviving in the workplace. So the relationship factor needs an extension and this, the word in, in, integrity is important because it then tells you how to represent yourself true to your own heart and soul if your relationship is going to do more than simply survive. People know how to survive in marriages. And quite often those marriages or those partnerships don't look very much like anything other than business as usual. Mm. And that's how I think people... Are running their lives, unfortunately, which is, well, I'll cope with my wife, I'll cope with my marriage, and I'll just get by until I'm dead.
0: It really resounds with me, and I'm not a, a leader in the sense that I don't have people working under me, but I feel I have a responsibility being on radio for so many years and being in this business. And one of the things that you cannot ever purchase or pay for with dollars and, and euros is your reputation. Uh, your reputation is everything, and that's what integrity means to me, and, and you work hard to keep that reputation in good stead, and it really helps you as a leader or as a success story, in my opinion.
1: Very important, because it realizes, in, the, in other words, the relationship factor is a reflection of who you are in relationship to other people that matter to you. Now, and if you're not being true to yourself, then how can you be true to anybody else?
0: Now, this this makes so much sense, but on a grand scale, if, let's say you're, you're tasked with advising the head of a major company, as you have over the years, somebody yeah. like uh, the head of Ford Motors or somebody in, yeah. a, in another position, Mobile Oil or whatever it might be, where you have so many working and moving parts, no matter what somebody does with a great integrity background – there's going to be an attack from the left and the right and the flank and and so forth.
1: Yeah, because as you just uh, expressed, you're pulled and pushed from every different people's perspective. Right. And why I realized the importance of engaging with, with integrity so that integrity represents your relationship with someone else you first and foremost got to start with yourself to begin with before you try and exercise your authority over other people. So I spent my whole life looking at all of the necessary contributing factors that allow people to embrace their own integrity before they start telling other people what to do. See, leading, if one looks at leading and the role that one has to play If you're going to find yourself in somewhat confrontational situations, which go on all the time in corporations, leading is what you have to do rather than holding up a title called I've been showing good leadership all my life until suddenly Mm. some incident happens when you're now caught off guard and your leadership title doesn't matter one single iota. Yeah. Mm. So leading is who you have to represent, which is yourself, not your own personality contest. You're not protecting your what I would call your own ego. So with all of these different uh, what I call distinctions of language were being pulled together over all the years I was building the language and still putting it together is the essence of what is fundamental in a relationship, what is absolutely fundamental. And that means if you're being true to yourself, then you have to look at uh, the, 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 the interesting feature that is so important in the dialogues that you're gonna have with other people if your relationship with other people is going to succeed. Here's what I mean. So I spent a lot of time questioning, what I consider to be the most fundamental base of human beings. Now, this may sound a bit strange, but I don't think it will. Human beings talk to themselves all the time. We talk to ourselves. It never stops. And I was recognizing that as the years I spent putting the Lounge of Leaning together, the person who was assisting me in the distinctions as as more than simply definitions of words was the gentleman who I think he's now still the head of the Oxford English Dictionary in Oxford, a guy called Philip Durkin. So now he and I talked an awful lot about words and the etymology and how words originated. So I became a bit of a wordsmith, which is probably why the lounge of leading is, is more than simply something you can buy in a library, you see. Mm. And they don't teach you the lounge of leading at business school. So I rang up Philip Durkin many, many years ago. And I said to him, look, this, I'm now realizing as we talk, you and I, Philip, talk to, to, to one another, and I'm talking about my interactions, that for the most part, human beings do not know how to listen it occurred to me, the more I was talking to other people, I found myself listening, sorry, hearing myself, Mm. rather than allowing myself to listen outside of my own particular self-interest, which is very, very difficult. If you try listening, it's possibly the most difficult thing for people to do, because as the song the sound of silence by Simon and Garfunkel, the difference between hearing and listening. It's, it's enormously important because we have the machinery that allows us to, to hear. We've got these hearing mechanisms, but listening is what we do with the machinery to engage with someone other than ourselves. So I was mixing around with this question when I was talking to Philip Durkin in Oxford. So. Believe it or not, uh, and this is quite mind blowing, I I asked him, where on earth do I get to find out how this internal dialogue has been studied, if it has been studied? So Philip said, you better talk to the philosophy department at Oxford University. I'm sharing this with you, George, because this is at the real base of how human beings Really engage with other people because we've got this this interaction going on all the time. And usually when we're upset, we're finding ourselves in difficulties just to cope or just show us how to survive. If I was just coping with my own internal dialogue and I'm married to a wonderful lady for 30 years, how long do you think my marriage would last, Jordan?
0: I wouldn't give it long odds.
1: <laughs> it was very long, so this is what allowed me to realize that when I uh, when I got married to my wife, I better engage my wife and listen to my wife more than just hearing my own internal dialogue. If you that makes sense,
0: makes perfect sense. We started our conversation uh, with the question of of listening and as a skill set. It sounds insane because everyone has the power to listen, but we don't use that power. We're so quick, by the way, to jump on somebody else and just blurt out an answer or a question without thinking, part of the immediate gratification response that seems to be happening. But I couldn't agree with you more. So choosing the right words, it starts with listening to the actual discourse so you know how to respond.
1: Precisely. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Makes perfect sense. And if
1: I'm not listening to my wife with her interests, the marriage is over.
0: Greatest place to work on it is at home. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. You know, one of the people I met once, who I'm not in, in favor of everything that he's been about, one of the best listeners I've ever met in my life was Bill Clinton. Interesting. And he's trained himself to listen very acutely. But look what he had to overcome. Oh yeah, and he's still married.
0: <laughs> yes, he is. Talk about coping mechanisms.
1: <laughs> Talk about a coping mechanism. Yeah, I mean, look, someone who listens very acutely becomes the present United States, and marriages into a situation whereby he could easily throw himself under a bus. Hmm. Then listening has got an awful lot to do with how he's still recognized as one of the most successful presidents of the United States.
0: Here's a question that's very much based on where we are currently, and that is in helping people lead corporations, particularly corporations in America, there's the added weight, if you will, of the woke, politically correct force out there that's that's corralling corporations, whether it be Coca-Cola or Delta or any of the current situations going on in Georgia. In other words, leaders have a tendency to sometimes just go with the flow and whatever seems to be popular, and it hurts them in the long run because people see that and they think, well, where where is that guy's principles? Where is that gal's right. real focus yeah. if they're just going to listen to the mob? So how do you cope with that as a leading coach in this area?
1: Well, I designed a business model that I think is the base of the Lounge of Leading's delivery system. And of course, I've studied all the different sequences of which I've spent my time, not by some kind of authority, but questioning authority. When one assumes because someone's a CEO of a company, their authority is going to get them everywhere. Well, you and I know it doesn't. So the question I was asking myself as I was moving to United States of America, I was studying the different circumstances that people find themselves when they are in difficult circumstances, how they overcome, how they overcame those difficult situations. So I'm, I'm studying uh, business, so that's my job, you know, to, to put together a system whereby I could coach people in dealing with confrontational circumstances. So when I was moving to the United States of America, from having lived in, in Europe for all the years before I moved to the United States of America, I have spent my, my, my life's engagement looking at all the different consequences when people get into difficulty, because I had to look at that for myself. So my own upbringing became a reflection of my study of other situations and circumstances. It just so happened to be that when I was being brought up in that very disastrous situation, yes, mm. my background came packaged with two words. One was "don't trust anything or anybody," because that was a, a way of, of getting away from the horrible situation. You'd go as a youngster. The other word that was a compliment to not being able to trust anything was that nothing is impossible. So that was my coping mechanism. So I couldn't trust anybody. So when things became uh, possible, I was looking at things as a way of seeing things that were not impossible, if that makes sense, Jordan, right. right? Yep. Which is why I was always challenging situations, probably why I ended up driving around the world nonstop. I got into the Olympics in dealing with, Uh, my sports venture, because the only two things I was good at school, because I couldn't concentrate on anything else. So my coping mechanism at school had to do with uh, physical exercise. So I became very, very good at sports. Um, And then geography. So I was studying places that I could get away from. And in fact, by the time I was 10 years old, I could draw every country on the planet by memory, which was quite Fascinating. So the whole idea of uh, now moving to United States and studying different business models so I could see how I could bring myself ahead of prevailing circumstances. And I was looking around what I was going on because it was very encouraging when people said, will you come and do some consulting work in the United States? because I was building my practice when I was putting together incentive events after I left the hospitality industry. You follow me? Mm -hmm. So I worked my way up to the top of a company called Grand Metropolitan. And then when 1982 came along, you may remember an incident when there was a, a hijacking of a cruise ship in the Mediterranean.
0: I certainly do, yeah. That was- The
1: Achille Laro. Right. And it was a Jewish gentleman in a wheelchair who was killed and pushed overboard. Klinghofer. Well, that was, the, yeah. that right. was the time, Jordan, when I was putting together my uh, events for grand metropolitan, the hotel chain, the, ho- the hospitality company I was working for. So my speciality as being one of the heads of marketing was putting together incentives and incentive events. Well, when the Achille Lara incident happened, Jordan, um, of course, All hell broke loose because the insurance premiums to take people on very exotic trips and travels, which is why my exploratory background had a huge contribution to my hospitality marketing capability, all that was thrown out the window because then clients said, We can't afford, given your pricing and and, the events that I was putting together. So my clients loved and adored my creativity which was putting together incentives for organizations. So they said, we don't mind if you do or don't work for Grand Metropolitan. So I decided to set up my own shop while I was living in Sweden. Right. So I organized big incentive events for a large number of the big corporations in Europe. And it really took off. That's when I was assigned to doing consulting work and coaching work backwards and forwards between the United States and Europe. And that's when I was moving into the United States, I was watching a program. This is to do with the business model. You you may wonder where that's fitting into this whole thing because the business model is at the foundation of the language of leading. So my business model came from me watching a documentary on PBS when there was a lady called Pauline Mayer who used to be the head of history at MIT because I don't have any academic credentials, I'm not afraid to call people up at Harvard and Yale and Oxford and Cambridge and Wharton, and Berkeley universities because I want to find out, as part of my coping mechanism, the most uh, advanced contributing factors to the language of leading. So as I was building the language of leading, of course, uh, it it made sense to talk to people who who are probably got amazing qualifications in academia that I don't have. So uh, the point of me mentioning uh, Pauline Mayer, who was then the head of history at MIT, she was talking about the founding fathers and what they were doing when they were taking risks, because that's a large part of my work, showing how people can take risks. So I was listening to her very acutely talking about the founding fathers, what they were doing. So I rang her up. I said, I'm interested because in my background, uh, I don't trust. And so I didn't trust the fact that I was now moving to United States of America. And part of it was saying, well, if you don't trust United States of America, because now you're looking at the concerns people have about whatever was going on at the time when I was moving here. Um, I, I was curious, and my curiosity became a coping mechanism. My curiosity was asking, well, why does everybody want to live in the United States? Why does everybody come and get married here? Why does everybody want to start a business? Why does everybody want to start a, uh, a fund or whatever? So it questioned me. And I really caught the interest of what Pauline Mayer was saying. Because because I don't engage in superficial stuff, I like to get to the root cause. Because if I'm engaging in a circumstance or in a circumstance involving other people, my I don't trust background gets in the way. Does that make sense? So I like to get to the fundamental set of principles. This is why the language of leading has is chosen to take up, So I rang up Pauline Mayer, MIT, and she said, okay, I'll spend time with you. So I hired her. And she said, I'll teach you everything I know about what was going on inside the heads of the founding fathers when they were putting together at the most magnificent country on the planet. Because we don't understand exactly how we're supposed to behave other than we're the best thing since sliced bread. So I wanted to get to the root cause of how come United States is the most magnificent, most successful nation in the history of the planet. Because remember, my background was don't trust anything that's superficial. So I spent time with Pauline Mayer, but here's the here's the piece that is, that is mind-blowing. On September the 17th, 1797, was George Washington's farewell address. And he pronounced what he referred to, thanks to James Madison, who used to write everything. he, He said that there was a disparate nature between ourselves and our foreign adversaries if we take party political sides over the most magnificent document ever written since the Magna Carta. Well, guess what? That's what we did because there was no precedent to launch the constitution. it had never been done before. Now, while he was president, there were so many insurrections and fights going up and down the 13 colonies. I mean, it's amazing. In fact, my family gave me three years ago, the book all about George Washington's farewell address. So there was no precedent to launch the constitution, you see. So in fact, what we ended up doing this is, this is remarkable, is that there Was no precedent, so we copied the British version of administration, which in those days was the Whigs and Tories, and that's why we've got the Republicans and Democrats, and nobody has been able to fix it. So, Julian and his bold intention chose many years ago, and I remember writing it down on my desk. This is like, gosh, we're now 2001. It was round about 1998, I wrote down on my desk, Julian Sturton, The Lounge of Leading, the world's leading business model. That was my declaration. And it's now coming to fruition because I've designed a model that replicates what has been missing on the political circuit because of course, we haven't been able to make that amendment to the constitution. So I decided to design a model that would simplify necessary interactions, whether you're dealing with families, whether you're dealing with corporate boardrooms, or whether you're dealing with governments, you see. So there is a frame of reference regarding the, the, the way I interact with people when I'm asking them to consider things that have never happened before, because the founding fathers put together that inquiry, so they could be prepared for things that had never happened before they weren't trying to beat the brits and get rid of the brits forever it was thanks to the french who came on board during the uh, the yorktown battles that in fact without the french we probably you know We'll be still fighting a bloody civil war, which is what yeah. we're doing. We're still fighting a civil war.
0: Seems that way. Yeah. The Huguenots too. We'll throw them in there. They were a good bunch. Um exactly. uh, we're we're pretty much close to time here, but I, I I could listen to you first of all all day because A, you're fascinating, and B I love your voice and your accent. <laughs> Especially somebody with your accent talking so glowingly about the Constitution, which I agree is is a magnificent document that has been battered and torn but still resides thank God, in place. Going forward with your work, where do you see yourself in the next couple of years uh, affecting leadership, affecting business? And are you confident that there's a good crop of young leaders out there that is about to emerge, or are we in any trouble in that regard?
1: We've got more trouble ahead of it, because this is the major part of my work, which is to stop people being attached to the you versus me mentality. Now, I'll I'll spend the next time in our next dialogue going to ground zero in terms of, well, why do human beings take sides? What on earth has it got to do with our current vocation? That might be a useful Mm. next phase of our dialogue.
0: Yeah, well, I'm so glad you bring it up because it is this gutcha mentality in America and in the West, perhaps in other parts of the world, where uh, everyone... Built up has to be torn down, and uh, that's why I think yeah. leadership is is, is precarious, uh, and it takes real skill and real understanding. Which is why you're here to uh, help leaders, yeah. you know, navigate this.
1: Well, I've I've got that we've only scratched the surface because, of course, the idea, and it's simply just an idea, that people depend on the you versus me mentality. That's been a survival part of my machinery. So I realized that if one's going to do anything about uh, not being held hostage by having to take sides, you see, it goes back a long, long time. Do you know how far back human beings have been taking sides? In fact, it goes back way before human beings. Do you know how long we have been taking sides? I would
0: imagine the hominids well before uh, cavemen were taking sides. Am I right?
1: This may frighten you. It's actually about two and a half billion years mm. ago. Mm-hmm. This is why the sequencing of the human genome, my conversation with people like Eric Landers, who was one of the three founders of the sequencing of the human genome, because unless we uh, address things at a fundamental, original level, we're going to keep repeating a lot of superficial nonsense.
0: Well, I love the fact that you not only listen, but you love to ask questions. I'm asking questions of you today, but you're happy to pick up the phone or send an email to anybody on the planet and ask them a question.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And so I've even got one of the, the, the gentlemen, he's the head of neuroscience at Johns Hopkins on my team. So this really goes down to the, the original time when two and a half billion years ago, John, with a single cell creature's. This gives you a reason as to why the, the, the sequence of the genome is so important as to how we're going to treat diseases and how we're going to treat uh, supposed conditions around the human condition, you see.
0: Well, uh, food for thought, there's enough for a feast. I want to thank you so much, Julian. Uh, we'll be announcing your website in a moment, but uh, certainly a lot of great stuff floating around in that beautiful mind of yours. I want to wish you the best. and. Uh, and I'm glad we're coming out of this pandemic so that you can continue to help others lead us through the next phase of history. So
1: Thank you, Jordan. I'd like to talk some more when we can because podcasting is going to be such a an important part of the the delivery of the language of leading. So I'd like to talk some more in in regards to that.
0: Julian Sturton has been our guest on On Mic with Jordan Rich. Do check out thelanguageofleading.com. He's lived the great adventure, knows how to listen, and certainly has helped to propel the careers of leaders around the world. Quick reminder, the book On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio, is selling quite well, and I keep promising you the audiobook. It's coming any day now. I'll let you know when. But if you'd like to know more about the book and how you can support the charity that I'm raising money for Boston Children's Hospital. Go to jordanrich.com. You'll also find out more about my voiceover work and teaching and my availability as a public speaker. Special thanks to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media for his help in publishing, to Ken Carberry and the team at Chart Productions in Boston, where this podcast originates, and always very, very much appreciative of you for subscribing and downloading the podcast now in about 100 countries around the world. And if you get a chance, put up a multi-star review, and that'll go a long way to making us even more popular. Until next time, this is Jordan, as always, saying be well so you can do good. Take care.